So you all know that the Mitchells, Pete and Ruth, have been in France for the last 25 years. They're here on a home furlough where uh, just a few weeks ago I helped them unload their vehicle as their youngest daughter moved into Covenant College. So they are officially empty nesters. So welcome Pete here. It certainly is good to be back with you this morning. It's been, I think, four or five years since uh, I came to visit. My wife Ruth is here, and uh, we're very happy to, to bring uh, good tidings, good news from France, and I'll give a, an update after a little later in the service. We're going to turn in our Bibles now to uh, the Old Testament passage, which is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, perhaps a familiar passage to some of you, perhaps a new one for some. And then we'll have a couple of readings from the New Testament. So this is the word of the Lord. Let's take heed to it. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And when he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. We'll read in the New Testament um, a passage from from Matthew chapter, in just a moment, uh, chapter 17, but first chapter 9, a little bit more familiar passage perhaps. Chapter 9, verses 35 to the end of the chapter. Matthew 9, 35. This is where Jesus uh, sees the crowds. He's been, uh, well, let's read it. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And then in the same gospel, chapter 17, little further in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Look, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you for the fact that you reveal yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ and in the pages of the scriptures. You have spoken, you have not stuttered, and Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your voice speaking to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, quiet any other voices that might distract us and help us to put our hope in you, put our rest in you, and hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're hearing a missionary preach this morning. What do you expect to hear? The title is The Heart of Missions, The Glory of God in Christ Jesus. So what is the heart of missions? What is the motor that motivates God's people to go in the name of Jesus Christ to serve him here in the U.S. or in some other part of the world? What is it that keeps Christians serving Christ when troubles come, when failures, when depression or even persecution? What keeps them going? What gets you up in the morning? It's the urgent need. Is, is it the urgent need, spiritual or physical that motivates Christians to leave hearth and home, to preach the good news and relieve suffering. Although identifying needs and responding to them is certainly important, this is not the heart of missions. God himself is at the heart of missions. His person, his nature, as revealed in the Bible, and thereby in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the vision, is the heart of the missionary call. God's glory is the beginning point and the end point, the end goal of any Christian missionary endeavor. It's easy to get caught up in the need, the desperate need of people around us. And, and it's appropriate to respond when we see catastrophes like have struck our, our own nation in, in the city of Houston. We should and must respond in Christian love. But we cannot get caught up in that alone, just the need, because the need is not the call. It's easy to confuse the need as the call of God. We cannot give what we have not already received. If we're exhausted, we cannot give to others. And so we come to our text in Isaiah, and I'll spend most of the time talking about this passage in Isaiah. Here, Isaiah was at a desperate point in, in the life of his nation. There was a leadership vacuum. King Uzziah had died. You may wonder, well, who, who is King Uzziah? Never heard of him. But if, you look, uh, if you look back in the Old Testament and the, the King, King's Chronicles and so forth, you'll find in Chronic, Second Chronicles 26, the story of a boy king, the king of Judah, who started at the age of 16 and reigned 52 years. And the scriptures say that he did what was right in the eyes of God, like his father Amaziah. If you go back and look at Amaziah, you'll see that both of them, Amaziah the father and Uzziah the son, they didn't uh, serve God with a whole heart. They didn't have a full, uh, undivided heart for God. Nevertheless, God blessed this boy king, this 16-year-old, 
and his reign was successful. And he built all kinds of things. I'll spare you the details. And he, he gathered an army and he vic- had victory. But when he became powerful, the scripture says, his pride led to his downfall. Verse 16, he became unfaithful, even disobedient. He went into the temple, he had no business being in the temple. And he went in there to burn incense before the Lord. He had no business burning incense before the Lord. That was the job of the, the, uh, the temple servants, the, the uh, sacrificateurs. Sorry, I'm trying to think of the word in English. The, the, the um, priests. So, uh, but Uzziah did it anyway. He went in with, with the, to burn incense. And uh, the priests came to oppose him and to correct him. And then while he was raging at the priests uh, with his uh, incense in his hand, uh, God struck him down with leprosy. You know the story, perhaps. And then he realized that he had been stricken by the Lord and the, the priest ushered him out. And he was glad. He was even eager to leave because he realized that God had stricken him. And so it was in this context of national mourning, the death of this King Uzziah, who had started so well and ended so badly, that Isaiah received a vision from God. And we're going to look at this vision in, in four uh, pages, four um, uh, First, experiencing God. Secondly, knowing yourself. Thirdly, receiving pardon. And fourthly, responding to the call. Just following the passage in, it's, uh, in verses 1 through 4, we're experiencing God. So the scene in the temple is the glory of God. And Isaiah is, is seeing this in a vision. He's not actually in the temple, but he's seeing the temple. The Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is the Lord Yahweh, whose name we cannot pronounce. This is the Lord who is reigning. He's seated on the throne. He's not standing as if his work is incomplete, but he's seated, and he's, his, his glory fills the whole temple. Just the hem of his garment fills the temple. And so uh, Isaiah is struck, and he's awestruck by this. My question to you is, when have you experienced God's glory in a personal and powerful way? When in your life have you had that sudden and intense awareness that God was getting a hold of you? He was getting your attention. Perhaps you were all alone in a beautiful place. And, and the, the, the awesomeness, the beauty of God's creation struck you and you knew that he was speaking to you and he was the creator. Or perhaps you were in a very desperate place. You, you were at the lowest point in your life and you did not know what, how you could possibly get out of that situation. And God spoke to you. He came to you and gave you the solution at that moment in time. I, I, I can think of many points in my life where God spoke to me very clearly. And uh, what did you feel? What did you uh, experience? And what did that cause you to, to, how did that cause you to be different? So in this, uh, this vision that Isaiah had, we have, um, we have the actors, God himself, and then we have the seraphs, these angelic creatures that are only mentioned a few times in the Bible, each with six wings protecting themselves from the brightness of God's glory and flying about and calling out. These, these creatures, we, we don't know necessarily what they look like, but don't picture little babies with wings like in Renaissance uh, art. art. Not that. It's more like a flying dragon, if you could get that. It's snakes that, that were serving God, that had wings, that were calling out, holy, 
holy, holy, the Lord Almighty. That was their activity, to herald the king, uh, the king of glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew language, uh, to repeat something gives it emphasis. Often in the Psalms, we have repetition that is uh, synonymous, or maybe not the same words are repeated, but the ideas are repeated. Sometimes it's antithetical repetition, you know, where, where the idea is repeated, but in a contrasting way. Here we have literal repetition of the same words, and three times is to, is to give the, the superlative so if something is holy, uh, we would recognize it as being set apart, different. If something is holy, holy, we say this is really something important that we need to, to give attention to, like the, the holy place, the temple. But the holy of holies, that is the most sacred place. And so here, the, the angelic creatures, the seraphs, are calling out to the holiest of all, the Lord Almighty. And his glorious attributes, the seraphs announced, fill up everything, even the whole world, even the whole universe. So what's the consequence of this scene in the temple? The consequence is that the sound of the voices of the seraphs, uh, the temple was shaken and filled with smoke. And so worship, we can say, brings about in us change. It shakes us up. Did you come this morning expecting to be shaken? Did you come this morning expecting to be changed? Worship does that. When you come before God in a private and public worship, are you ready to be shaken up by his glory, by his holiness, by his power and mercy? This brings awe back into the word awesome. When we we enter his presence and see him for who he is, we are Full of awe. We are awestruck. Recently, just a few days ago, we, we were, you could say, sunstruck. We, we had the solar eclipse. And, um, and everyone, or many people, thousands of people, equipped themselves with these special glasses. Hopefully, you got the good ones and not the bad ones. Uh, and so here, we're, we're covering our, our eyes just to, to protect us from those, those rays that might burn our retina during the tot- totality of the eclipse or just as it, it's poking out one side or the other. Imagine what it was like for Isaiah. There in the presence of God, he fell to the ground. He, and we'll see his response in just a moment. So in Isaiah's day, they didn't have this attitude that worship was something that would change them. Instead, they had become dull and half-hearted in their worship of God. Their, the words were just like, like mush in their mouth. They brought offerings and animals and grain, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They would offer many prayers and empty words because their hands were full of blood, the scripture says in Isaiah chapter 1. And uh, their evil deeds and their injustices were crying out to the Lord. And so God said, I don't want any of that. Don't bring that to me. And he called them to change. Wash your hands and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the case of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us reason together, God says in Isaiah chapter 1. So seeing God, experiencing his presence in his word, 
and with his people in prayer, this is a life-changing activity. It will affect your daily life. So experiencing God brings about change. Let's see what that change looks like in our second page. Knowing yourself. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. The prophet immediately recognizes his personal problem before the most holy God. He falls to the ground. Woe to me, perhaps it's not a, 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 an expression you are familiar with. Uh, if you have ridden horses, woe usually stops the horse. But here, this woe is, is saying, I'm done. I am finished. I am toast before this God who is holy, holy, holy. Usually prophets bring blessings or warnings or even maledictions upon others. Here the prophet, Isaiah, is predicting his own demise. He's, why is he doing that? Because he says, my lips are unclean. I live among a people of unclean lips. The Hebrews in Judah also, his, his people were the, the, the people of Judah. And he claimed that they also had unclean lips like him. Have you ever tried to go a week without saying one unwholesome word, without ever cursing, without ever swearing, without ever deriding another person, putting them down, cutting them down, even in jest, without lying, without bending the truth, without gossiping or repeating a bad report? Give it a try. I can remember when I was just starting as a pastor, I heard Jack Miller preach in Franklin, Tennessee, and he challenged us to do just that. That was his conclusion of his sermon, was, okay, go out now for a week and don't say anything bad. Just give it a try. It's devastating to acknowledge the power my tongue has for evil. And James in the New Testament says it this way, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but the human being can, uh, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So the prophet Isaiah, at that moment in time, recognized, he realized that he was not worthy to speak or even to look upon the most holy God whose presence had filled the temple and the whole world. His experience of the living God had changed his perception of himself. Isaiah sees his own sinfulness so clearly now, so he predicts his own imminent death, even annihilation. Thankfully, this is not the end of the story for Isaiah, nor is it the end of the story for you or for me. God gave us a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ in the following scene. And so we turn to our thir third uh, window, receiving pardon. One of the seraphs flew to Isaiah with a live coal taken with tongs from the altar. What did Isaiah say or do? Did he say, wait a second, that looks really hot. I don't want that. Uh, how about, I think that's going to hurt. Uh, could you bring me something else? Maybe some nasty mouthwash or, or some foul-tasting medicine? Or, or how about a peach smoothie? I'd prefer that. No, Isaiah didn't say that. No, this was not optional. 
The live coal that came to him was not a choice among many. The burning coal was the only solution offered. The mouth of the prophet is thereby purified by the coal touching him. This gives him a new place of honor to fill his role as a spokesman for God. And so we see foreshadowed in this, uh, this act of the, the seraph, the angel, the angelic being bringing the coal, the perfect life and the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Jesus carried all our sin, yours and mine, when he suffered on the cross, and his suffering was both physical and psychological and moral. Our part is to receive his pardon and purification. So there's a great exchange that's offered here. His righteousness, Christ's righteousness for our impure life. His obedience to the Father for our disobedience. His apt words for the, for the moment for our inappropriate words. His victory over sin and for our defeat. And so we, we see that uh, the, the prophet Isaiah received the pardon from this angelic being and his life was changed. And so the last window is his response, the responding to the call of, of God. The most holy God chooses to send frail human beings. And he says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. What does this would-be prophet say in response? Does he say, here I am, gimme? Give it to me. I want, uh, I'm willing to serve, but let's see, these are my qualifications, and this is where I, I need this. I need to have a family and children and a nice house, and, and I need this, these, this benefit package. No, not at all. He says, not give me, but send me. This is Isaiah saying, I'm all yours. I'm all in. He's offering God the blank check. I'm yours, wherever, whenever, however. Isaiah recognizes his new calling to speak and represent the Lord to his own people. The message he must carry will not be easy because it's a message of judgment and a call to repentance. If you read the following verses after in chapter 6, you'll see that he's called to, to speak the truth to, to his people, and they'll only become more obstinate and harder, and they won't believe and, and so Isaiah is, is calling them to repentance. And as you read through the, the prophecy of Isaiah, you'll see that there is hope in the end. There, there are points of, of bright hope. And yet at the beginning, it is really a call to bring a message of judgment and a, a call to repentance. The most holy God is still calling us to serve him today. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So he calls us to make disciples of all nations, of all ethnic groups. He calls us to go. He calls us to make disciples as we go, as we teach, as we baptize. Do you hear his voice? The message he has for us is one of great news, even the best news imaginable. We are not called to bring the message that Isaiah was called to bring, one of judgment or to convict people of their sin. 
That is the work of the Holy Spirit. We are, we are to speak the truth in love. We are God's emissaries to call men and women to new life, to repent and turn back from the old life and to follow Jesus. The most holy God is calling some of us to serve him cross-culturally by learning a new language and learning to love people who have different cultural limits, uh, cultural habits, and perhaps different values that are, than ours in North America. Could God be calling you today to this exciting opportunity, this difficult vocation? God is calling some of us also to serve him right here in North America. The U.S. is certainly a mission field. It's certainly a place where many nations are coming. Do you see yourself as a missionary? What are you doing to advance his mission through your relationships, your family, your work, of course, and through your civic responsibilities? I grew up uh, in, in South Korea. My parents were missionaries uh, with the Presbyterian Church. And uh, I heard my father say so often, uh, you're either a missionary or a mission field, so what will it be? And I would kind of go, well, Dad, I guess I want to be a missionary then, yeah. And who wants to be dirt? You know, who wants to be the place where God's planning? But, you know, the more I think about it, you know, we're both, aren't we? We're his field. He's at work. I'm not finished, you know. God's still working in me. He's still planting in me. He's still growing stuff up in me. I'm still, in essence, a mission field that he's working on. And I'm also sent out to be his emissary, his missionary. And so it's both, isn't it? My dad was trying to kind of push me more toward the missionary response, but really, uh, it's not that we, it's, it's really a question of will you follow Christ? And all of life is mission. And as we, we began, uh, the heart of the missionary call is not, not simply the, the responding to the, to the cry of the need uh, around us, but it is responding to the holy God that calls us to serve him, recognizing who we are before him and recognizing his sacrifice for us and letting our, our lives be transformed so that then we can say, here I am, send me. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you. Thank you for...